Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. We're in the book of Revelation and we're in the heart of Armageddon. We're in Revelation 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. The title of today's message is When Something Becomes Unfixable. And what we're going to see in the text is humanity will eventually, the way it's going, it's heading in a direction where it becomes unfixable. And God's going to have to do something about that. Doesn't mean that right now God is not working on redeeming humanity and calling people to salvation and trying to get them to see the light. But at some point in time, God's grace and His mercy and His compassion eventually come to an end. And now it's time to punish evildoers. Because not only is God love, but He is holy. And holiness demands that sin be punished. That evil and wickedness are punished. And we're going to see that play out in the chapter. This is one of the hardest chapters to preach. It's very much loaded with heavy, heavy punishment, heavy punitive judgments that come out. The application, the principle I want us to work with as we're looking at this passage, and it's this principle. Our job in life, in our sanctification, is to go through life, not only to be conformed to the image of Christ, but part of that being conformed to His image is understanding in our own personal walk with Him what is redeemable and what isn't. What is fixable and what isn't who to bond to and who not to bond to and who to separate from. One of the problems that we have is we continue to hold on to things that we should let go. We hold on too long for maybe it's nostalgic reasons. Maybe we have history. Maybe it's a bad relationship we know we shouldn't be doing and we need to let go. Or maybe it's a practice that we're doing. We need to let it go, a habit that we need to let go. It's hurting us. It's destroying us, but we have a hard time letting it go. That's the principle we're working with. What do you and I do when we're looking at a situation that's not fixable? The person's not coming back. We've been working on them for 30 years. They're not coming back. It doesn't mean that we give up hope, but it means that we understand what the game is. And a lot of believers have a hard time playing this game. They don't know when to say no. They don't know when to say, it's enough. We're done with you. You can't keep acting this way and having no consequences whatsoever. We have to put an end to this. There has to be an end game. And a lot of Christians don't know how to play the game. And so what ends up happening is they keep pulling weight with them all through life. Like Hebrew, the writer of Hebrew says, let every weight that loads us down, let it go so you can run the race. And unfortunately, believers are not getting themselves in the sin most times. They're being weighted down by things that need to be put to an end. Whatever that is for you, you know what God is convicting you and I of. And he is saying, it's time to let it go. It's not fixable. Maybe it's a career and you know it's a dead end. And God's saying, it's not going anywhere from here. Stop. Switch careers. I don't, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're single and you're dating somebody. And you know that person's not right for you. But you keep hanging on because you don't want to be lonely. 
You don't want to have that feeling of being alone, but that person is not right. And God's saying, let it go. End it now. Or maybe it's a problem that you know is there and you're not fixing it. And you just let it fester and fester and fester. And you just keep letting it go. Well, hopefully time will heal it. Time won't heal it. Time makes it worse. Maybe it's that ongoing health issue that you've been ignoring. And God's saying, you're going to go to the doctor for this? You're going to get help for this? Or are you just going to keep ignoring this? Because eventually it's going to kill you if you keep ignoring it. See, that's how life is. We've got to address problems. And if that problem is not fixable, it's time to move on. In our relationships, we got to know who to bond to, who are healthy for us, and who to separate from. That's what the book of Proverbs is about, knowing who to bond to and who not to bond to. So when we get in the book of Revelation, I want you to carry that principle with us because we're going to apply it eventually. But that's what we're dealing with. And so the context... We're not dealing with an arbitrary God who just makes a decision to judge people. This has been a long time coming. The tribulation is the second worldwide cataclysmic judgment that God has done on humanity. The first one was the flood. And you can see the evidence of the flood all over the world. All over in the segments of cliffs and things. You can see how the sediments were deposited from that flood. It's a reminder. But yet, what does Peter warn? That people will forget about that. They'll forget about the flood judgment. The next judgment is fire, so to speak. It is the judgments you're going to watch now, which are global. So don't lose the context, because otherwise you'll misrepresent God. God has been allowing this to accumulate, and now it's time for him to execute judgment on humanity. And what's the point of this? The point is... To get to the kingdom, to get to the good place where we're all wanting to go, this polluted world must be evacuated of all evil and all wickedness. He must get rid of all of it. He must purge the world of all evil and wickedness. Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, all of his regime must go. All of humanity that is not willing to come to him for salvation must go because the kingdom is a foretaste of heaven. It's an elimination of evil, at least outward evil, an outward manifestation of wickedness is eliminated. So in our own personal life, what God is saying, if you want the abundant life, if you want the good life that I've promised you, you've got to purge the problems out of it. You've got to fix the problems or move on or separate from them. Tie the knot, end it, move on. And that's what we're going to learn. The setting here that we're going to see is the midpoint of the tribulation. I have a diagram I want you to see. We went through the seven seals. We went through the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is now releasing the seven vials. As we can see in this seven-year tribulation, Every time a new judgment comes, there's 21 judgments, the judgments get worse and worse. So the trumpets are worse than the seals, and now the vials are worse than the trumpets. In the trumpets, a third of the earth, or a third of whatever the plagues are affecting, it happens with a third, at least two-thirds. There's a grace there. But now it's all global. It's 100%. The whole world will be affected by what's coming from the vials or what's called the bowl. So it's been getting worse And God is putting more pressure on humanity. Now think about this. With all these 
seal judgments, trumpet judgments, vials. Let me tell you what's been going on. Supernatural occurrences have been happening all over the globe. Angels are flying, pronouncing the eternal gospel. Demonic hordes have been attacking people in full vision, in full sight. People have seen the demonic. Heaven has actually opened and people have seen Jesus on the throne. That's all in the book of Revelation. Lots and lots of supernatural occurrences. So it hasn't been something that's hidden from humanity. They know what's happening. A lot of death and massive destruction. Martyrdom like we've never seen before of the saints, of the tribulation saints. Massive death of saints of the tribulation. That brings us to now the bold judgments. These are the worst you could possibly imagine. I can't go through all the ramifications and the results of it, but you can sit there and imagine what would happen if these things occurred right now. Massive destruction, massive death. There won't be hardly anyone left alive. Jesus said it this way, if that time had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. It's so bad. So remember, that's the context. You got to keep that in mind. Let's start in verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice. We don't know who the voice is. It could be God's voice. It could be the Lord's voice. It could be an angel's voice. But it came from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. And I gave you a little handout in your bulletin, and you should all have this. Basically, if you want to look at the seven bold judgments, you're going to see the seven bold judgments in chronological order and how that plays out in the second half of the tribulation. So if you want to just use that as we go, this will keep your chronological sequence in order as we go. It says this, verse 2, So the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And so the angels are actually the ones who are going to perpetrate this. They're the ones who are going to carry out the judgments. And again, remember, context. This is not for conviction. This is not to bring conversion. This is an expression of God's holy wrath and anger and justice that must be done on this planet. The first bowl that comes on the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore. So the idea that sores start erupting on individuals. Let me explore this before I parse it out a little bit. This foul or loathsome sore, foul is the idea that the sore is rotten, it's poison, it's the characteristic of the sore, and the effect is it's painful and destructive. By the way, when the translators translated the Hebrew text, the Old Testament, the Septuagint, into Greek, they used the same word. And that same word is used in Exodus 9, 9 through 11, for the sixth plague of Egypt. It is the same sore that came upon the Egyptians when Moses was there. Remember this. Anytime you study Moses and what happened to Egypt, it is a foretaste of the tribulation period. The Pharaoh in that story is a foretaste of the Antichrist. Egypt is a symbol of the world system. And so the plagues are very similar that happened in Egypt that are going to happen worldwide. Very, very similar. And it's a typology for the tribulation. Pharaoh is the Antichrist in modern day terms in the foreshadowing. But these sores are specifically given to a certain group of people. And watch what the text says. The text says they came upon the men. Notice the definite article. 
who had what? The mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. God is specific of who gets this sore or these sores. It is only those who worship the Antichrist. It is only those who have taken his mark. All believers, all saints of the tribulation are exempt. This happened to Israel, remember, in Egypt. They were exempt from the plagues of Egypt. And so God is discerning between believers and non-believers. Now, the reason they're getting this mark, because God warned them not to take the mark. They have passed the point of no return. They're not coming back. They're not fixable. They're not redeemable. doesn't mean that God can't redeem them. It just means they have rejected God so much that they accepted Antichrist. And God warned, the minute you accept Antichrist and take his mark, there's no coming back. Look at what Revelation 14 says. Revelation 14, a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, check that out. God warned the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers. If you take his mark, you're not coming back. That's the point of no return. And these people have. So, again, remember context. God is not being arbitrary. He has warned them. You will cross a line that you're not coming back from. And when you cross that line, there's hell to pay. I will give you the full wrath. And so this is the beginning of the wrath, is these loathsome, poisonous sores. Now, this is interesting. The Antichrist can't help his people. He can't help them heal their sores. He is being shown that he is not God because he can't heal these sores. But see, I want you to see this. There's a message in the judgment. Go back to the picture of the boils and the sores that come upon people. Just imagine this covering everybody from head to toe who have received the mark of the beast. I want you to see the message in this. The message is this. The mark symbolizes these marks of sores that are marking the body is a judgment for them taking a mark. You notice that? God is basically saying, you want the Antichrist mark? I'll mark you all up. Your judgment will then be a mark. A poisonous mark that symbolizes your filthy morality. Your unholiness will be symbolized by the boils that come upon you. These poisonous, morally rotten boils symbolize your soul. Your morally rotten. Your poisonous. Now again, know the, know the context. These people have accepted the Antichrist. Satan's son, they think he is God. They worship him as God. And God's saying, fine, you want to be marked? Here's the mark. Let's see if your God can remove the marks off your skin. Your marks are a sign of seal of ownership. You took his mark. You belong to him. Now I'll mark you for judgment. You took his mark for why? For ease and comfort. 
because you couldn't buy or sell and keep yourself living with food and water without his mark. You did it for your own security, your own comfort. Now I will take your security and comfort away. Because these painful, loathsome sores will hurt you physically. Now, God's not being arbitrary. He's giving them exactly what they deserve. And the angel eventually will state this. Let's move to the second judgment. Verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. So we see an angel who then pours out this wrath, and it affects the entire global oceans. All sea life. So this is a picture, kind of a, you kind of get an idea. This is from a, an algae and a bacteria that grows, and it causes a redness in the water. But just imagine the entire global oceans red as blood, as a dead man. Could you imagine that? Just, just a picturing all the seas, the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic, the Indian, all of them, blood as a dead man. Notice the term as a dead man. Not living blood. Dead blood, blood from a corpse. That's how the oceans will get. Now, with the red algae that you see even today, the water, if you drink it, is very poisonous. In some parts of the world, they get red algae, and that's how it gets. By the way, interesting enough, if you ever want to go scientific on all of these judgments, get Henry Morris's book on Revelation. And Henry Morris, founded ICR, Institute of Creation Research, did a great job in explaining scientifically all that goes on. He mentions this in his book. He said, the compositions of seawater is very much like blood, by the way. It's all just a little chemical change that turns it into blood. The redness comes from iron. But actual seawater is very close, very similar to the blood that flows in our veins, by the way. I never knew that. And he says, all it would take is one chemical imbalance of the angel changing the consistency of all water, and it would all turn to blood. Now, If you notice, all aquatic life dies. I want you to think through the ramifications of all sea animals dying. That massive food chain is now gone from earth. All gone. You can't eat anything, any fish, shellfish. It's all gone. Everything is contaminated. So now you have the life cycle of eating and animals now gone. That whole lifestyle from the ocean is gone. It gets worse. It gets worse. But I want you to remember, did this happen before? It happened in trumpet judgment, but only a third of the waters were done this way, leaving the two-thirds still of seawater. But it happened in Egypt too, didn't it? Moses did this, right? It's the same plague. You're right. It's following the same line. But now it's the whole globe. Folks, the whole hydrological cycle has now been interrupted And I want you to think through this. Let me bring in some other judgments that happen. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, in the tribulation, four angels stop all winds. There are no winds happening on planet Earth. The Coriolis effect of our weather patterns, the weather shifts because of the wind patterns over the globe, because of its spinning, has now ceased. There is no wind anymore. The two witnesses that are now dead now and rose from the dead and went into heaven stopped all rain on planet earth. 
The whole hydrological cycle of where earth gets its water from evaporation from the ocean and then rain and weather has stopped. There is no weather. There is no wind. There are no clouds. Stop. The hydrological system is stopped. And God is challenging the Antichrist, challenging Satan. Can you halt the hydrological cycle like I can? I just did. Stop me. That's what he did to Pharaoh, remember? If you are the God of this world, stop me. God has proven he is God and God alone. The atmosphere then, if there's no winds, if there's no hydrological cycle, the atmosphere becomes dead. It's dead. Henry Morris, getting scientific about it, he says it's almost a greenhouse effect of deadness. It's just dead, like a dead person, a corpse. Nothing's moving. The air's not changing. It's all just staying as it is, like a corpse dead. The earth is dead. Wow. Let's move on. Now the fresh waters are affected. All fresh waters. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And again, another angel hits all the fresh water. So not only are the seas and the oceans destroyed, but the freshwater streams are all turned to blood. The hydrological cycle that comes from inside the ground, the well waters, all that stuff where the springs come from have now been turned to blood. And so again, this is other rivers and stuff that have had that algae. And again, just gives you a visual. Uh, Imagine all water on planet Earth from the rivers turning into blood that you could not drink. Well, how are they going to survive? Only what they have stored since that happened. Maybe they got a warning when the trumpet judgments happened and a third of the rivers were affected, but now all the rivers are affected. So whatever they stored, that's what they're going to have. And that's it. So as you can imagine, massive death will ensue. People won't have any water to drink. I think you can live, what, three days without water? And that's it? So a lot of people will die. The people who have stored water, they'll live. But then they got other problems to deal with. They got their sores, and a lot of things are affecting them. What's the message in this judgment? What's the message in the judgment? There's always a message in this. Water in Scripture represents eternal life. You remember that? Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? John 4 said this. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Talking about the well water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This is why in heaven there's a water, the living water that comes from the throne representing eternal life. Water always represents eternal life. Jesus used that as as an analogy, as a metaphor to talk about it. But what's the message? These people have refused God's offer of eternal life and have chosen death. Death represented by a corpse blood. This is why God told Israel and said this in the Noahic covenant, don't drink blood for life is in the blood. Blood represents life. Don't drink it. And so with this judgment, 
They have refused the water of eternal life. They are given blood to drink as a penalty for them refusing to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's always a message there. Let's continue on, verse 5. And I heard an angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. Notice this. Why does he have to say that? Why does the angel have to proclaim that God is righteous in doing this and that God is the eternal one? Verse 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. They killed the two witnesses. They killed the tribulation saying, massive martyrdom. Hence, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And just let that sink in. What is the angel saying? They deserve this. And any accusation that any of these earth dwellers want to make against God are wrong. He is righteous. See, you can imagine what the humanity would be saying about this. God is unfair. God is unjust. How could a loving God do this to us? And the angel sits there to declare God is holy. And you people deserve this. You deserve to drink blood. Because you know what? You killed the saints. You martyred them. Therefore, you were thirsty for blood, you'll get blood to drink. If you drink blood, what does it do to you? It'll kill you. There's no water on planet Earth. If they try to drink this, it'll kill them. It's become poisonous. And in verse 7, And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. You're doing the right thing. This is exactly what must be done. Now, I guess this ain't palatable to the seeker-friendly churches, by the way. They ain't going to preach this one. You're not going to hear this. This is why the book of Revelation is avoided. This is why the feel-good churches will never touch this one. Oh, this might offend the sensitivity of the self-esteem movement of the people who have went through uh, you know, public schools and everyone gets a trophy for achieving nothing. Right? This would offend too many people. And yet the angels are saying they deserve it. I know it's hard. But guys, 50 years ago, every church preached this. Every church preached this. What I'm saying is nothing new. But yet it seems so crazy that you would even say this, Brandon, in, in our politically correct world. That you would even tell people they're going to hell and that's offensive. And then they're going to drink blood. How gory. That's not my God. You're right. It's not the God of the Bible. You have a foreign God. And that's what the churches in America are teaching, a foreign God. You can't have just the God of love without the God of justice, without God's holiness. Otherwise, you get a doting Santa Claus grandfather type of God that's a figment of your imagination, You have to balance out God's love and holiness and justice all together to get a balanced view of who Jesus is, who God is. And this is what you're getting. But this is what is escaping most of the churches today. Message in the miracle. They're given blood to drink because they've shed blood. 
God is punishing them with the same acts they did. You shed blood, here's blood to drink. It's kind of like if you look in the Old Testament, God would do this a lot. Pharaoh tried to drown every Jewish baby, if you recall, every Jewish male boy. Remember that? And what did God do to Pharaoh? He drowned them in the Red Sea. You want to drown little baby boys? You will end up drowned. Evil Haman wanted to hang Mordecai on the gallows. And what happened to Haman? He was hung on the gallows. King Saul refused to kill all the Amalekites as he was ordered to. Remember that. As Saul stabbed himself and tried to commit suicide, an Amalekite claims that he finished him off. See, it's amazing how God will do that. He'll bring the same thing they did upon them. King David committed adultery. Put Uriah on the front lines. Had him killed. His own boys did the same thing. Sexually immoral boys and committed murder in his own family. What he did came back to him and affected him. So God sometimes will show people what you do is going to come back to you. In the measure you have given it out, I will give it back to you worse. That's scary. That's why Jesus said to you and I as believers, with the measure of judgment you have given, it will be measured to you. If you give mercy, you'll get mercy. If you don't give mercy, at the beam of seat of Christ, you won't get mercy. Now, we're talking about judgment of rewards, not judgment for salvation. But again, it's the same principle I hope you see. In the measure you give out mercy, you will be given it by Jesus at the bema seat. Ooh, yikes. Am I merciful? Let's move on. Verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And power was given to him to scorch and and should have the definite article, the men, with fire. And definite article should be in your English. It should say, the men were scorched with great heat. The idea is it's only scorching the earth dwellers, not scorching believers. Believers are kept from this scorching. And again, we're not sure what happens, but the sun is affected This is truly global warming. This is not the fake hoax of man-made global warming stemming from SUVs that Al Gore wants to talk about. It's crazy. Another hysteria. By the way, you don't hear him talk about global warming too much. You know why? The evidence is all too much for them, and they don't know what to do with it. So they're kind of hushing it down. But nonetheless, somehow the sun is affected. Now, whether that's the earth gets closer to the sun in its orbit around the sun or the angels simply changes the chemistry of the sun to where it actually gets hotter with us, we don't know. But God miraculously changes something to where it scorches planet earth. Now, if you look at certain parts of our earth that go from vegetation to kind of like a desert state, it has to do with them being closer to the sun a lot of times and the conditions But just imagine the entire planet like this because of the scorching of the sun. It would set force on fire. Everything would burn down. There would be no water because the water is turned to blood. Massive animal extinctions and cattle dying. I mean, just you would have pictures of this. This is Africa right now because of the scorching heat there. 
Imagine the entire globe like this because of the scorching heat of the sun. Remember, let me bring in some other issues. No wind. So it's constantly hot. The blood from the seas and the lakes and rivers is evaporating into the atmosphere, but there's no Coriolis effect to carry the winds up north and to carry that moisture up north and deposit it. So, again, just to get real scientific from Henry Morris, and I appreciate all the work he's done, he mentions this, that immediately if the sun went into this mode and started scorching the earth just like this, you would have massive evaporation instantaneously. And what would happen, he said, is that, the, that such a great evaporation would happen, and again, evaporating blood, by the way, into the atmosphere, a great continental shelves would become unstable. Submarine earth slides would occur all over the planet, destroying most coastal cities, he says, but also generating great tsunamis as these great shifts of earth slide from where water used to be. And tsunamis would happen all over the earth attacking the coastlines. Any major city, any city on the ocean lines is now gone. So you think about that. New York is gone. Tokyo, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, Rio, Buenos Aires, Amsterdam, Rome, Athens, Calcutta, all gone. He has wiped out every coastal city. Just gone. Amazing. In humans, have you noticed that when we're hotter, it triggers us to be a little bit more agitated? Yeah. Just go on the heat today. And see how agitated you become. And you're easily agitated in heat. You know why? Your central nervous system can't handle the heat like that. All right, amen. I got an amen out of that, right? <laughs> so somebody knows, right? But what happens? The central nervous system, when it gets too hot, people get agitated. You know more crimes are committed in heat than in the wintertime? In the summertime? More crimes are committed because people get agitated easy. They get... You get in the line at Disneyland, I'm going to tell you right now, and it's 95 down there with humidity, and you get in a line for three hours, you're going to get pretty agitated, especially if some old boy cuts in front of you. You're going to get really agitated to where, hey, man, you're going to throw up your dukes. You're ready to fight. And you're like, why am I like that? Why am I so agitated? Because the heat's hitting your central nervous system, and it's messing you up. People get messed up mentally when the heat is there. Imagine all the planet being like this. It is just super hot everywhere. No water. Yikes. What's the message in the judgment, though? What's the message here? I want to show you something from Ecclesiastes 2.14. I have seen, this is Solomon. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all this vanity grasping for the wind. Now, if you remember Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is about life under the sun. It's life without God. How would life be without God? How would life be without an afterlife? How would life be without heaven or hell? Okay, that's kind of the mentality. So, so Solomon goes through Ecclesiastes saying, it's all vanity without God. It's all it's nothing. It's meaningless. We're living a life that's just totally meaningless. We, we eat, drink, and marry, and then we die. That's meaningless. And so he concludes that. So when you see in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, it means with the thought of not having God in your life, no afterlife, whatever. Kind of like an atheistic life, okay? But what's happening here is God is affecting the sun. 
They only wanted to live under the sun. They didn't want to think beyond the sun into heaven and hell and eternity or have any thought of God. They wanted to live for here and now. And that's why they gravitated to the Antichrist, because he gave them what they wanted. Just like these politicians that promised so much. Free health care for everybody, universal health care, or free education, free college for everybody. Who's paying for that, dude? But see, the Antichrist will be like that. He will give people what they want under the sun for here and now. No thought of eternity. So God's saying, fine, you want to live like that? I'm going to have the sun that you wanted to live under burn you. You will be scorched or metaphorically burned by your own choice. This is the life you chose. Here and now, now you're going to be burned by it. You see how the judgment is coming in that metaphorical sense. It's a real judgment. But if there's a message behind it, your lifestyle will burn you. Hmm. How do you think they're going to respond? Oh, God, forgive us. We're so sorry. How stupid we were. Watch. And they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Oh, my lanta. That doesn't wake you up? That doesn't wake you up. Boils, water in the blood, scorching heat. What are you, crazy? Yes! You got it. Sin makes you crazy. They have reached a point of no return. They're not coming back. That's the point. You take the mark of the beast, you don't come back from that. Well, it's Romans 1. If you ever read Romans 1, you know, once you're given over to a depraved mind, a darkened heart, you don't come back, man. You're messed up. That's why some of these people live in the day. They're not coming back. Now, you and I don't know that, but God knows that. They've gone too far. They've hardened their heart too hard. And they're not coming back. And so this is what humanity looks like in the end. All these things are coming upon them. And notice that they, they, say, who, they don't say who's doing this. They blaspheme the God of heaven. They know who it's coming from. They know it's coming from Jesus. And that's their mentality. It gives you a picture of hell, doesn't it? Most people don't want to think about hell and people in it. It's a hard thought. But let me ask you this. Do you think people in hell get better or worse? Based on this passage and this principle, people in hell get worse and worse the longer they're there. They become more unredeemable. So this idea that, you know, some people will have, these cults will have an idea, well, you can spend some time there, and then after a while, you know, you'll get out. No. The longer you're there, the more you deserve it. The longer they stay alive and the more plagues God gives them, the more they deserve it. Because look how they respond to him. That's humanity in its essence in rebellion. Get a good grip of that. When a teacher or somebody says, oh, you know, we come out of the womb in, in a good state. No, you don't. The Bible says you come out a sinner, polluted. That doesn't mean a child is depraved as, as worse as they can get like Hitler, but that pollution affects them. They have a, a gravitational pull to sin. We all do. And that's why God has to redeem us. But here's the deal. The longer we wait, the harder our hearts become. You don't, you're not born with a hard heart. You're born with a polluted heart. 
But the longer you and I live, the more hard our hearts get. That's why it's, it's extremely important for people to get saved early on in life. Because after the age of 12, you go down to the, like minuscule statistics of who gets saved. If you're in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, it's like one, less than 1% people get saved. Because why? The heart gets hard. Children's hearts are soft. You can tell them about Jesus and they'll accept them. They have no problem with it. Get into their 20s, they, all, they got all kinds of baggage. And that baggage makes them hard. And you're seeing that. Again, this is punitive. Scary to see all this. It's very scary. Let's do some application. In understanding a hard heart, people are not born with a hard heart. Their hearts are polluted by the sin nature. There's no doubt about that. But as you've watched, and we're seeing this in the great apostasy, a lot of people falling away. They were raised in church. They know better, and then they fall away. And it's like, hey, what are you, what's going on, man? Hearts become hard because they start getting angry at God. See, you'll see the term in Scripture, God-hater. God-hater. And people are not automatically God-haters. They become God-haters through life when something bad happens to them and then they start blaming God for what's happened to them, it starts their hatred towards him. And then they become a full-fledged God-hater. When you become a God-hater, your heart becomes hard. Look at this in Acts 28. Paul is talking to the Jews there and he mentions this and how their hearts have become hard. Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people, what? Have grown dull. The way the Greek is translated, it shouldn't be dull. It should be hard or calloused. Or there's been layers put upon their heart. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. They did it to themselves. They did it to themselves. That's what we're seeing is a culture that's heart is hard towards God. They have done it to themselves. And that's why they can't hear you. That's why they can't see. You're trying to witness to them, and they don't get it. It just goes right over their head. Their hearts are hard. doesn't mean you give up, but I want you to understand the condition that they're in. Can they come out of this condition? Yes. But at some point, they're going to reach a point of no return. And that's between them and God. I, don't, I couldn't see it. But they will reach that point. That's scary. Now, it'll say, like with Pharaoh, that God hardened his heart. But Pharaoh was hardening his own heart prior to this. So let me explain what God's doing when it says God hardened their heart. Every time someone's heart is hard and God does something outside of them, that they don't like, the act that he did hardens them. They interpret anything that he does in a hardening way, if that makes sense. So in effect, the scripture is saying God hardens their heart by doing outside activity that every time he does it, it's going to harden them. So in the plagues here in Revelation, every time he puts a new judgment on them, it confirms them in their position. It's a position they've already decided. So let me give you a picture of a sailboat real quick. If you think of it in this terms, God's wrath is like wind flowing in one direction, one speed, and it's always flowing in this direction. 
Well, people set their life like a sailboat. They can set their life with the wind in their back, and they're going along, and they're helped by God because they go along with the program, and they accept Christ, and their life changes. Or other people can set sail against the wind. So the person has a choice because that wrath is still going one way. Either the wind is at your back or you're going right for it. That's what people do with their heart. They set their sails in a certain direction or orientation, and eventually they're going to hit that wind. So we want the wind in our back if we accepted Christ, but if you go forward towards the wind, you're not going anywhere. And that's what a heart does. It sets itself and orientates itself. So when God does something... It just confirms them even deeper into their decision. That's what God's doing here. He's confirming their decision. That's what these plagues are about. I know it's kind of tough to, to think about on a Sunday morning, but that's what's happening here. The last one is this. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom became full of darkness. The throne of the Antichrist will be in Babylon, in modern-day Iraq. That's where he set up, sets up headquarters. But he controls the entire globe. And so just like with Egypt, there was a plague of darkness that he had Egypt. Anytime judgment in, in, in Scripture you're seen, you'll see darkness. At the, at the cross of Christ, there was darkness because he was being judged for our sins. And now the whole globe is in darkness, yet it's being scorched by the sun at the same time. Don't ask me how that happens, but it happens. And so the whole world is enveloped in darkness. No light except one pocket of light. One pocket. There's only one pocket on planet Earth where there's light. And this will trip you up a little bit. It's Jordan. What? Jordan is the only place where the judgment doesn't affect. Why? There's someone there. There's a group of people there hiding out. They're called the remnant. A Jewish remnant has escaped the Antichrist and went into Petra, Jordan. And Jordan is the only one that escapes the plagues. Just like Israel in Goshen escaped the plagues of Egypt, there was light in Goshen while darkness covered Egypt. This little area where the Jewish remnant is in Jordan has light, is not affected by the darkness. Does God know how to separate the wheat and the chaff? You better believe he does. He knows how to do that. What's the message of this? Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, and for fear those deeds will be exposed. God is metaphorically saying, your hearts are dark. You have chosen not to come into the light. Coming into light is coming to Jesus, coming to the revelation of God, of truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And they have chosen darkness. Since you have chosen darkness, I will give you real darkness. You can see the message in the miracle. It's symbolic of their hearts, that darkness. They have chosen the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the Antichrist. And now what was the effect on this? Verse 10. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Not coming back. Their tongues, they gnawed their tongues. Did you catch that? 
You know, you see these old movies like in the 1800s or 1700s when one woman was having a baby, they put a stick in her mouth and she was getting ready to have a baby so she bite her tongue or whatever because of the pain. It's that kind of idea. It's extreme anguish. They gnaw on their tongues off because they're in such incredible pain. Can't control their mouths. There's a message there. What are they, what are they doing with their tongues? Blaspheming. They can't stop blaspheming. You see the judgment in that? The very tongue they use to curse God and blaspheme, they're now gnawing off. The very tongue they use to curse the God of heaven is being chewed off right out of their mouth physically because they're in such pain. That's hard to imagine. Wow. Yeah. But that's how the form of judgment comes. It comes with a judgment that affects the very thing they were using. Wow. What's the application on this, man? This is heavy. I know. It's real heavy. Obviously, there's a whole context here. They've reached a point of no return. In our own life, in something that we're dealing with, has it reached a point of no return? A problem, a person, a job, a hobby, Something. Has it reached a point of no return? It, it, that, that you know, no matter what you do to it, it's not fixable. You can't, there's nothing that's going to happen out of it. And God's saying, let it go. I mean, the areas that's going to affect you, marriage, dating, extended family, work, finances, health, walk with the Lord, neighborhood, community, pursuit of dreams, possessions, desires. Is there a job that you have that you need to let go of? Is there a relationship that you have that you need to let go of? Because it's not fixable. Now, we're not, again, no context, right? We're not saying if your marriage is not working, get a divorce. Not saying that because you probably don't have biblical grounds for a divorce. But we're just saying in the marriage, are there things you're tolerating that you need to fix? You just can't let it sit there and fester because it becomes a cancer. That's what the whole point of this is, is finishing off problems. And if you can't finish off the problem and fix it, then move on. Is there something that's weighing you down, a distraction? extracurricular activities, not getting where you need to go, taking you away from your family? Are you spending your money on frivolous things, just wasting money, being stupid with money because it's a hobby horse or whatever? And that's fine, but really, where is it taking you? Does your spouse have that drinking problem, that drug problem, that porn problem that's not being addressed? Or how about that character issue about your 20-year-old that won't get their act together, but yet we keep tolerating it? At some point, we got to copy God. God's saying, hey, this problem is not fixable. And so I got a clean house. Let me tell you a personal story with this. There was a point in time in my life where he changed directions on me. I didn't expect it. I didn't know it was coming. But he says, you're not doing this anymore. You need to put aside your dreams. I got something else for you to do. And I didn't want to. And my arm kept breaking down. Three surgeries later, and I still don't get the hint. This arm became unfixable. Three surgeries couldn't fix it. Two Tommy Johns, massive uh, shoulder work, couldn't fix it. Wouldn't work. Unfixable. And God's saying, you got to get the hint now. You can't even move your arm. I'm an idiot. I just played it, just tell you right now, I'm an idiot. Because I wouldn't let something go. I wouldn't let it go. 
And finally, I had to surrender, not the best of surrendering, but I did it. And he said, okay, now I need you to do this. Because you're not doing this. I'm done. This is going to destroy you. At some point, you've got to give up on that, whatever that is. And if he's shifting you in that direction, you've got to go. Because he is saying, if you're going to get to the promised land, if you're going to get to the kingdom where the abundant life is, you have to let this go. There's, no re- there's a reason why you don't have joy. There's a reason why you're not experiencing the abundant life, because you won't fix the problems. You won't let it go. And the great American Western poet said it like this, and he encapsulated the whole principle in one verse. You ready for this one? You have to know when to hold them. (laughs) Now, hold on. There's more. You have to know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. He couldn't have said it any better. In your life, the essence of your sanctification a lot of times is you better know when to run, you better know when to walk away, you better know when to fold them, you better know when to hold them, so to speak. Because if you don't, you're going to get burned. That's the message we get from this passage as believers. Fix what is fixable, but if it's not fixable, move on. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.